Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Getting to the Cash Flow Game with K and K. And today, you only have, sorry, just me, 1K. Crystal's on hiatus or she's doing something else. Anyway, so today I'm super excited. Um, let's see here. Logan has been back on our podcast. Logan Matashami. That's a tough one. It's a tongue twister. Boy. Logan, hopefully I didn't screw that up. If I did, I don't know what to tell you. I'm doing the best over here. Logan is a lead analyst at Housing Wire. So basically what Logan really focuses on is housing, housing. And I don't know if I mentioned housing, but that's what he loves. Um, he used to be in the mortgage business. So he was on before. So if you want to learn more about his past, go watch our previous episode about him. It was good. And today, obviously, I was very excited to get in this conversation and talk to Logan about Oh, wait, did I mention housing? Yes. And interest rates and what's going on. And are we going to have a crash? Oh, by the way, he's like, what do you mean we're going to have a crash? That's a very, that's like an insulting word, I guess. Like, how are we going to have a crash? So if you want to know, we're going to have a crash. The answer is, yeah, you got to watch the podcast or listen to the podcast. So um, we talked about housing. We really, and Logan is not, you know, we're not here talking about, um, emotions and stuff. Literally he studies data, whether it's in San Diego, whether it's in LA, whether it's across the nation, whether it's rates, what's going on. So we really tackled a bunch of stuff, like obviously inventory, what's predictions, predictions with rates. Why would rates go up? What if they go up? What happened when they went up before? Um, what's the difference from now and a crash? So all these exciting things. So anyways, enough about me, enough of my jibber jabber. Let's get Logan on. Let's jump into it. I know you guys are really, really excited to listen to this guy because you want to know what in the world is going on with housing. Should I buy? Should I wait? Is this thing going to crumble and crash? Like, come on, somebody tell me what's going on. I need some confidence. Logan's the man. Let's jump on right now with Logan. Logan, what's up? Thanks for coming on. Excited to jump in and talk about some housing with you today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Cool. So um, I know we had some technical difficulties, so we're starting over again. But as I was saying before, I, you know, I'll ask you a bunch of questions. I think before we get started, I'd like to hear your 30,000-foot view of what do you think is going on with housing these days based on all the information, questions you get asked, like what – what do we need to know? Well, housing looks perfectly normal. Um, uh, years 2020 to 2024 has the best housing demographics ever recorded in history. Mortgage rates are near all-time lows. So demand is stable and picking up. That's, that's fine. The issue with housing is actually the thing that I've always been concerned about is home price growth is accelerating a little bit too hot for my taste, but that's more of a function of something that started all the way back in 2014, uh, total inventories in America have been falling. And the other thing that's happened in 2014 is mortgage purchase application data has been rising. So years 2008 to 2019, because I always separate my work in those two periods, had the weakest housing recovery ever. So mortgage demand was slowly working its way back up. And then here we are in years 2020 to 2024, we have the biggest housing demographic patch ever, ages 28 to 34, the biggest you add move up, move down, cash buyers, investors, you put it all together, demand is stable, except inventory is now taking another leg lower, below 1.52 million, which is my kind of comfort zone. And home prices are accelerating because we simply have a shortage of existing homes for people to buy. And that's the downside. The positive side, again, is demographics kicked in. And more Americans are buying homes in years 2020 and 2021 than any period from 2008 to 2019. So roughly housing looks kind of perfectly normal to me. Um, if you believe in demographics and that long-term downtrend in the bond market since 1981. Yeah, I mean, inventory is like, the is it the lowest even before the pin? Like, is this the worst ever right now? So currently um, the lowest ever. Right. Uh, a good perspective is if you take San Diego, Los Angeles and Orange County together, combine them uh, at the start of the year, it's less than 7000 homes. 
for uh, three areas that have millions and millions of people to uh, to buy. And last year, inventory hit all-time lows. So I think the concern or the fear mongers talked about, well, forbearance was going to crash the market, even though demand was stable, which is really the funny part. If demand is stable, you can't crash a market. Well, problem is demand picked up uh, and inventory just kept its continuation downward lower. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's kind of like, I mean, everybody just, you know, there's so many people, I think, on the fence. They're like, should I buy? Should I wait? You know, that they're, they're going, if they didn't buy, they're going through their head. Is it going to slow down? And so I had the conversation like you would is, well, what is it going to slow it down, right? So I'm going to ask you is, what would it take to slow housing down pretty dramatically, you know, in your opinion? Well, since the summer of 2020, I, I, I wrote this for Housing Wire. I said that the housing market could cool down in terms of days on market growing, but it would need the 10-year yield to get above 1.94%. The problem is, in my forecast, I don't talk about the 10-year yield getting over 1.94%. That's a very key level for me. Even today, with the hottest economic growth, the hottest inflation data, the Fed talking about raising rates, the 10-year yield's at what 1.80% today. Yeah, so it's very difficult. But if global yields can rise together with the 10-year yield, you can get above uh, 4% mortgage rates. And that'll just cool the market down a little bit to create more days on market because millions and millions of people buy homes a year to live in. And we just are in a very unique once in a lifetime period from years 2020 to 2024, where we have the most, uh, the biggest demographic patch ever, and then tied with all the other type of buyers it's just the demand for housing is too strong in the sense compared to the inventory that's out there. So uh, it doesn't really matter what the sideline home buyers do because every year more people are buying homes. So the home buyers to me are always legit. Um, I think anybody who's on the fence, they're not ready, right? Because you don't you don't have to tell people, should you buy a home? You like you don't ask someone, should I have sex with my wife or my husband? <laughs> They shouldn't ask you as a person, well, should I buy a house? No, you as a person yourself would know when you're ready because you're just buying a payment. You're buying a shelter payment. If you're an investor or something like that, that's a, that's a whole different question. But why do millions of Americans buy homes? Why did more Americans buy homes with mortgages during the pandemic? Because the demographics kicked in and they're just buying shelter costs. I think that's the lot of the confusion has been the professional grifting in America has been when is housing going to crash next? So for many years, they kept on pushing that, pushing that, pushing that, pushing that. And then here comes, they've been wrong for so long, right? Since 2012, that they thought COVID was their savior. They thought for some reason, COVID was going to, you know, take away the value of the best housing demographics ever and the lowest mortgage rates, and nobody would buy homes. Exact opposite. More, more people bought homes last year in 2020 than, than the previous decade. So it's just a simple demographics play, right? That's all it is. More people need shelter at this time and they're ready because they're buying a payment. That's all it is. It's a shelter clause. Housing is the cost of shelter to your own capacity to own a debt. So whatever sideline buyers, that's their own personal uh, financial situation because everyone else says, hey, I'm good to go because they look at that total payment level compared to rent and they said, I can do it. Yeah. People ask me that. So I, my answer is, um, let's say, let's say you buy a home and the market crashes in five years and they said, okay, I said, and you have your job and you can make your payment. Is that going to change your life? They're like, no. I said, so if you're renting and the market crashes in five years, is that going to change your life? They're like, no. They're like, oh, I said, if you're buy a home and you want to need to sell it in five years and the market crashes, that could be a problem for you, but you might, you might not be able to sell it, right? You know, the, the, the thing is that we, we always have these discussions about people on the fence. I generally don't believe in the notion that millions of Americans are fence home, home people. I think there's a lot of lifetime renters that might think like this, that, you know, should I buy a house? But in general, if you look at the trends of housing post-1996, there isn't anything that would, would show that all of a sudden people were on the fence for a long period of time. Um, COVID was a very unique one-time event. Uh, it paused home buying for about six weeks and then people just shot back up. So you have to ask yourself, 
Why are these millions and millions of Americans buying homes with mortgages and other people are so-called fence sitters? Those people who are buying homes are ready. Whatever the fence sitters are, I don't think they're ready. I don't think they, they, can, they can afford to buy the house. So they're questioning, are there marginal people that say I can buy, but I'm gonna wait? Yeah, but in general context with how existing home sales work, there's really no evidence of like people rushing into a market because they, they, they were waiting or people are just holding back. Sales trends, you know, it's really hard in America post 1996 to get existing home sales under 4 million just because people need shelter. And that's what they always have. This is also not a very exciting topic, by the way. So it's better to grip yeah. out about when housing is going to crash. But generally, if you just look at it as shelter costs, if you look at the total payment levels per home buyer's incomes, which is over 100,000, it's an easy choice for them. And that's why I think that, you know, when somebody asks me, well, hey, should I buy a house? I always tell them no. They're like, what? You don't know me. I say, yeah, I do. If you're asking me if you should buy a house, you're not ready because yeah. everyone else is ready. Why are they buying homes and you're not? They're ready. You're not ready yet because it shouldn't be that hard of a decision. It's just, do I, can I qualify for a house and then payment level? End of story. If you're like worried about home prices crashing or anything, you're not ready. All these yeah. people are ready to buy homes. They're not. I like that. I like that answer. It's funny. I talked to a girl two days ago that's looking to buy a pre-approval and she goes, she could fall forward and she goes, I said, and she's like, didn't ask. I said, she goes, yeah, I just want to get pre-approved. I'm not sure if I want to buy. And I said, oh, why not? And she said, you know, I like renting because when something breaks, I call the manager and they come and fix it. And if I own it, I've got to go call the handyman and find who it is and have them come out here. She goes, it's just so easy to rent. And I said, then you should rent. Yeah, they're, they're not ready. They're right? not ready. I, I agree. In my experience, I, I rarely... I mean, before I retired, it was I was in the mortgage industry for 24 years. And the, the every sideline, I'm not ready. They weren't ready to buy homes. There, I, So I authentically didn't find somebody that was like, okay, I'm pre-approved, I'm good to go. But I'm just, you know, people buy homes every year. So it's just, it's it's not actually an uncommon thing because <laughs> no, yeah. people buy homes a year. So I, I just think the the marketing of housing after the housing bubble crash uh, has has made it more prevalent for people just to like uh, do scare tactics. It's a very it's a very effective grifting kind of uh, marketing plan. But none of these people are actually economic people. Like all these like like I don't read a lot of people's work, but people send me like YouTube clips of people. I was just like, this is not economics. This is part of my language. It's horseshit. You it's know, emotion. there's nothing. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing here. There's nothing here. So what happened is they kind of all went in in 2020. That didn't work out. So what do grifters do? They move the goalposts the next year. Hence the creation of the forbearance crash bros. I mean, I was so 100% confident that housing wasn't going to crash in 2021. That in 2020, I created the term forbearance crash bros. A bunch of guys on YouTube say forbearance, forbearance, Twitter, clubhouse, Facebook, whatever, any, any, any avenue. And they never understood that demand was stable and that the homeowners on record, and I think this is the most important economic aspect. If you look at homeowners profiles post 2010, uh, best on record. I mean, my whole America's back recovery model that I wrote on April 7th saying we're going to recover in 2020 was based on the premise that we weren't going into a recession. In fact, we were actually, economic data was getting better toward the end of 2019 and 2020. So housing naturally, when the pause is over, we're going to come back in 2020. That was such a fast recovery that even the grifters didn't even have time to do their newsletters or anything. They just, oh, it's going to crash next year. So when 2021 happened and, you know, early in the years on Bloomberg and all these other stations, I was talking about, hey, we have to worry about home prices accelerating too much because demand is stable and inventory levels are low. There's no forbearance crash and look what happened. Probably one of the biggest economic whiffs in our country's history to go from like a bubble crash to the most outperforming uh, sector uh, and a global recovery led by the United States of America and its people, boy, that is like a tattoo on your forehead that's going to go to your grave. I mean, you can't take that back. That was such a whiff from some of the people that I, I'm telling you, I'm dead honest. These are not economic or data people. They're actually, to be honest, some of the worst talented Americans we have, but they're really good professional grifters, man. They just roll with lying until the very end because they don't care. They just want clicks. And that 2020 and 2021 is a really good example that 
data people matter for a reason because they believe in models. Professional grifters don't. And housing crashing was always a grifting model. It wasn't actually about economics. And I call it the lost decade. The housing bubble boys 2.0 from 2012 telling people housing's a bubble, bubble, it's gotta go back to 2012 prices was one of the worst decade whiff calls in our history. No, I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, yeah, because you, you don't see the uh, the YouTubers all, you don't see those anymore with the crash. It's kind of over. They fizzled out. So I, I agree. It was a, and people were saying, I'm going to wait because the foreclosure is going to come. There's going to be more demand. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's happened. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, you could just see it. Yeah, the forbearance crash bro premise on September of 2020 was that jobs, it, it, this is the irony part. These people don't read data. Um, homeowners in America typically make over 100,000. So by October of 2020, people that made over 60,000 got a lot of their jobs back. So forbearance was going to collapse by itself. It was just going to take time. We went from near 5 million forbearance, which wasn't even bigger than the shadow inventory in 2012, to under 882,000 today with demand at pre-cycle highs. So it's just, these are not data people. And because they're not data people, they can't read how, how, the, how the data would function going ahead. And they don't really believe in demographics and the bond market is always some bubble and rates are gonna skyrocket. It's just not a very good group of people. But again, as professional grifters, awesome. A plus for that. Yeah. So speaking of rates, um, I mean, I, I watch rates, same thing. Um, what, if you, I mean, it's hard to forecast rates, but are you kind of under the impression it's, they're only going to go so high. Well, I actually do believe you can forecast rate ranges, but you have to be a bond market person. And I think that's, that's so much of my economic work is moved around the 10-year yield. So to give people an example, I started incorporating 10-year yield forecasts in 2015. In the previous expansion, I always said the 10-year yield is just going to be at a range between 1.6 and 3% until the next recession happens. For the majority of part, that was the, that was the case. You're looking at what, 3.5 to 4.75 mortgage rates up and down. When COVID was about to hit, I said, hey, listen, the 10-year yield could get to negative 21 basis points of 62. So we're talking about rates really dropping uh, under 3%. But then after the recovery, I talked about in 2021, the 10-year yield should just be in a range between 1.33 to 1.6. So that's, that's the range we should get to. Rates are not going to go up much, 3%. Here in 2022, it's similar. 62 basis points on the downside, 1.94%. On the upside, that 1.94% is really key to my work because it's something I talked about in 2019 uh, after the inverted yield curve. So rates actually look perfectly normal. The one difference about this year than last year is that I can make a premise for the 10-year yield to get above 2% where rates could get above 4%, but it would need Japan and Germany's 10-year yields to rise with, it, with, with us, which they have recently but not, not enough to get the 10-year yield over 1.94%. So I always tell people, if the bond market, the 10-year yield can get above 1.94, same thing I talked about in 2019, by the way, in my 2020 forecast, then we could possibly get maybe 4% plus mortgage rates. To about, at, at worst to me, it'd be like four and a half, uh, but we're just not in that category. Even with the hottest economic growth, even with the hottest inflation growth, even with the Fed raising rates, it's been very hard for the U.S. 10-year yield to get over that. A lot of this is that downtrend in the bond market since 1981, right? So uh, that downtrend, the, the test of that is about 270 on the 10-year yield. So there's limits to the upside of where rates can go, which for me is the bad part because I always talk about this is the most unhealthiest housing market just because inventory is so low that people are forced bidding with other people because there's shortages. And the only way we can get a little bit of days on market to grow is getting that 10-year yield above 1.94%. So I'm like rooting for that, but I also know how hard it was going to be. And you could see it in 2020 and 2021. And even, even today, with all the action we have, it's just very difficult to get there. But if Germany and Japan's 10-year yields can rise and the world economies get back together, you got something there. But until then, that 1.94% has been tough. So I was going to ask you, I think a lot, um, one of the questions I think I was thinking about with you is building, right? A lot of building going on. Take San Diego. They're not building much housing here. They're building, you know, condo towers. 
But also, too, is if you drive to the desert on your way to Palm Springs or Palm Desert, anybody listening to this that's in California, you know where it is. They're building a lot of these houses, bigger houses, um, and, you know, price out there getting expensive. Obviously, 2008 and 9, those areas got crushed, whacked really hard. Um, and then you look at these houses, you're like, wow, they're starting to build these little mini McMansions. They're a good deal. But do you think there's going to be demand for these outlining areas to, you know, swallow up all this inventory? You know, when total inventories are this low, um, the builders, in a sense, are building a more expensive product with their new homes versus an existing home. So uh, I've, I've, I've always had a premise that it's very hard to have a construction boom in America because that means new home sales has to boom. And the new home sales market has a very big competitor. It's all these existing homes we've built over the decades that are cheaper. So whenever rates rise, the builders kind of slow down production and people just have all these choices. The problem we have here now is that existing inventory has collapsed everywhere, right? Uh, uh, all across the country, uh, single family homes, inventories, there, condos, everything is so low that there's just forced bidding. And no matter how much construction that's done, it doesn't really alleviate the existing home sales market because it's just a competitor in new home sales. It's, it's fine, it's slowly rising. It's been slowly rising since 2008, but it's nothing like the existing home sales market, which is you know 6 million homes versus you know the new home sale market, which is really roughly around 750,000 right now. So it, 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 it's hard to really have a construction boom because demand is there for inventory, but it's, it's the existing home sales market that really gobbles a lot of the a lot of the housing. So when new homes are being built, they're really built for a more wealthier, a little bit older home buyer. And there's a big difference between the new home sale buyer versus the existing home sale buyer. So again, the builders are never going to oversupply a market. They're going to protect their margins. And what they have done in the last uh, two years, which is also another unhealthy thing, they have pushed prices onto the consumer because they had pricing power. Right. So as long as rates stay low, they believe they can keep on doing this. When rates rise, they slow construction down and then we're still back into this low inventory. So my kind of target for everyone is that we really want total inventory to be between 1.52 to 1.93 million. The NAR's number, the last number they had is 920,000. Um, that it, those inventory levels are really low historically, but if you get above 1.52 million to 1.93, at least it's somewhat of a balanced market where you don't have just a simple raw shortage of home. Uh, an agent friend of mine showed her last listing 31 offers, you know, way after, way above asking <laughs> price uh, in, uh, up north. And it's just because there's just not enough homes. That's the problem with the existing home sales market. And the new home sales benefit from that because they can peel off buyers that, are, that make good money. Um, it's, just, it's just not what you want to see. But unfortunately, this is where we are right now in America. And who's the biggest buyer right now? Is it the millennial? Millennials have been the biggest buyer of homes in America for a few years. They started buying in 2013. Uh, again, years 2020 to 2024 are different than the previous expansion because the biggest age group ever recorded in U.S. history are now ages 28 to 34. So going with the same skit I do at every economics conference in the last seven years, Americans and people generally are not very complicated. They rent, they date, they mate, they get married. Three and a half years after marriage, they have kids, they buy homes, if they, if they make the money. Housing was always a year's 2020 to 2024 story based on the demographic push. And then you add move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers, investors, demand is stable. And that's what we have. We don't have like a credit boom housing market like we saw from 2002 to 2005. We just have a demographic replacement buyer. That's why I use the term replacement buyer. It's just that we have a lot of people right now, more than we had in the previous decade that are just buying homes. So demand's a little bit better, but inventory levels just collapsed. So and oddly enough, this is the one thing I was always afraid of that inventory channel, like not even 5% mortgage rates in 2018 really budged the total inventory uh, data uh, for the national market. So we just have to be hopeful that days on market grows and this kind of madness of simple shortages of homes ends. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, you keep saying it's just, it's just this inventory thing. It's just, and then there's really, you can't build fast enough and they're not going to oversupply, like you said, because they know the economics, they know the fundamentals. It doesn't make sense. So 
I mean, this is the environment we live in. You know, yeah. And, and that's why last year, January 2021 on Bloomberg, I said, listen, everyone should worry about home prices overheating. Stop with this housing crash stuff and look what's happened. And we are starting 2022 inventory crisis again. Fresh new all-time lows in inventory with mortgage rates sub 4% and unemployment rates sub 4%. Yikes. That's not what you want to see when you have an inventory shortage just slow. So one uh, some of the things I talk about, I think about is since I'm on the mortgage, you're on the mortgage side, a lot of people refinance it to really low rates. And there's if there's not a motivation to move, and if they move now, they got to find a home, which is almost impossible, then the rate's higher. And then obviously with the pandemic, do you think like just are you seeing it? Are you thinking – we obviously the pandemic is changing us to something, but do you think we're being changed because pandemic, I don't want to move. I'll just remodel my house. I locked in a low rate. Do you think that's going to slow people from even like moving up, moving down or just making a change? Well, before COVID came and before the work from home model came, housing tenure in America already doubled. So from 1985 to 2007, it was five years. Um, Post 2008 to 2020, it's over 10 years. Uh, here in Southern California, like it's 15, 16 years. So people were always staying in their homes longer. We've been building bigger and bigger homes for decades and uh, our family sizes have been getting smaller. So we don't necessarily, uh, the homes that we were building were big enough for a, a single family uh, or family of four even. So there's not a very motivation or a financial need to move unless you need a bigger home or you need a smaller home. So people are kind of set in the work from home model, which is very exciting, by the way, because it's the biggest variable in housing ever, uh, has gotten people, hey, listen, I just need to build up. I just need to add another room or get a home gym. So that just makes more money into the house because this trend has been here for many years. People just weren't moving as much. And now the problem, again, the concern is because of that, if demand picked up just a little bit, which should in 2020 to 2024, it could crack the inventory levels lower. And again, this started in 2014. It was slowly moving. Nobody thought everybody's all worried about a crash and inventory skyrocketing. The exact opposite happened. If you believe in demographics and the long-term downtrend in bond markets, this was what people should have been afraid of. What do you, um, so here, like anybody listening to this, it's not in California, but here in California, we obviously have a serious housing crisis. Um, so the big boom is, Turn, you know, adding an ADU on your house, or now if your house is a certain size, you can split the lot. I mean, so now, I mean, I have a lot of clients that are investors. It's, you know, they're all adding ADUs, converting the garage, converting the shed, you know, building garages, building on top, all this stuff. And, you know, I'm here, oh, it's going to cause, you know, this and that, and I'm still not going to be enough, right? I mean, that this is still, I mean, it's going to help, but it's still not going to move the needle. Is that, I mean, do you have the same thoughts with that? The only thing that creates more inventory post 2014 has when rates rise, the days on market actually grow. But in terms of total inventory, we really haven't seen any year that has had a significant increase of inventory actually since 2006 to 2011. And the, the, the problem is, is that when you look at the market from 2002 to 2011, this so much of my work is based on this. In 2005, housing peaked. It was also inflated by a, a credit boom. In 2005, six and seven and eight, uh, bankruptcies were rising, foreclosures were rising. Then the 2008 job loss recession happened. None of that is happening now. Homeowners on paper look even better now than they did before the pandemic because <laughs> all, all of them have what I've always said, uh, this is the same line I use always, fixed low debt costs versus rising wages. So if you look at mortgage payment uh, as a percentage of disposable uh, uh, income, uh, all-time lows, household debt payments. So you're, we, we, these people are set. They don't need to move. They're doing great. And I think that's, that's everybody was worried about, for some reason, inventory was going to skyrocket when demand was stable. And it's just that you, ha you have to go back and look at 2002 to 2011 and compare 2012 to 2022. And you could just see it is as you, you cannot get two different sector or two different cycles more different than what housing looked like then 
uh, compared to what it looks like now. This is one of the reasons why I said forbearance was never going to be the issue. These people were all fine. They can, most of them got their jobs back. They're going to just they're just going to stay in their homes. Why 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 would anyone leave to try to another buy a house in this market or to rent? So uh, that's the issue: is that people are stuck. They're doing well. So there's a downside to that. Inventory levels naturally fall, and they've been falling for eight. This is going to be the ninth year right now. So higher rates. Weakness in demand is the only thing that can create balance. But I always tell people back in 2018, when the kind of the, oh, here comes a housing crash, 5% mortgage rates, total inventory even back then didn't move. Home price growth cooled down uh, in, in that year, but we had still six near 6 million total home sales that year. So inventory will come off of weakness. It'll create days on market. The question is, can, can, we, can we get back over 2 million total inventory nationally. Uh, um, and, and that's going to take just higher rates to slow things down or home prices keep on accelerating that we start to look like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, because those countries, home prices are much hotter than ours. Uh, and and it, just, it just diminishes the affordability and only certain people could buy homes. So that's why I'm rooting for higher rates just to create some balance in this five-year period. I talked about 23% cumulative home price growth nationally. If we just get that, that'll be fine. We're manageable. And people are like, we can't grow 23%. Oh, yes, we can. That'll, that'll be a blessing. We already got that in two years. So I need to somehow get balance in my home price growth model. And the only way I could see that happening is rates going above 4%, where it just cools the market down a little bit. And again, it's just hard for the 10-year yield to get above 1.94%. So I was going to ask you, um, it's funny because I'm sitting here in my mind and I'm going back to 2018 because I remember just having a conversation with somebody and I remember it was, they were talking about, man, houses are sitting on the market longer because rates were higher. So I wanted to dive in more to understand that because basically what you're saying is, and it makes sense is, hey, Kenny, we have low, low demand. I don't really see that changing. The foreclosure crisis that everybody happened, that was the biggest flop. Um, interest rates are still historic lows. They might come up. But what you're saying is, can you just dive into why if the if the, the average house sitting on the market is what? Is it 10 days, 15 days? And why if it went to 45 or 60 or whatever it is, why does that cool a market down? Like just to kind of like educate people. Okay, so... Um... This is a big part of my work recently because days on market, 30 to 45 days is normal. Uh, even in 2019, when I, I even wrote this for my own blog, I said, this is a very healthy housing market because people have choices, right? So when people have choices, they don't get in bidding wars. And then sellers could go, I could sell my house. And then there's plenty of houses out there that I can buy. So I feel comfortable selling my house and I don't have to do some crazy requirements to buy, you know, have somebody buy my house. <laughs> there's, there's just, there's just a more, it's a better atmosphere when days on market are above 30, right? So the transactions don't happen as fast. And I know real estate agents might not like that, but it's a more balanced market. And that's what we saw in 2018 and 2019. But the interesting part is when 2018 happened, that's when the housing crash people really started to kick in because they thought, they thought 5% mortgage rates were going to create a crash. It literally didn't budge the total inventory levels nationally. Uh, it just cooled the market down because the days on market grew. That means less bidding wars. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a balance between the seller and the buyer. Here, when we crash down to where we are now, a teenager level, unhealthy because the seller is in full control because since there's so many, so few homes on the market, they've got all these buyers and it just creates a faster rate of growth of pricing. And unless you have something really squared away as a seller, uh, some sellers just feel, I, I can't really, I don't like anything out there. So even if I sold the house, I might have to rent. So it's just not a, it's not a very healthy market in that sense. It's completely different than the housing bubble. That was a credit boom and couldn't be sustained here. It's just a shortage of homes. So the days on market growing is actually a positive because it gives everyone a breather right? There's less bidding action it means people will be more happy because nobody wants to go in a house and, oh God, there's 20 other people bidding against me. That's not, that's not fun. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the uh, survey index indexes have collapsed. Last year, a lot of the housing crash people said, oh, look, the, to buy a home survey has collapsed to all-time lows. Housing is going to crash. Mortgage demand picked up toward the end of the year and we ended up at uh, pre-cycle highs. It's not because people don't want to buy houses because the 
inventory is so low, the days on market are so fast. It's such a high competitive market due to the shortages of homes. That's not healthy. So the days on market growing is what everyone should root for because you get balance. Balance creates sustainability. And again, for that to happen, we really do need rates to go up or eventually home prices get so hot that you know, uh, it, it'll cool the market down. So I'm just looking for balance because I'm, again, I'm more afraid of home prices overheating than crashing and 2020 and 2021 showed you that. And 2022, we're at fresh new all-time lows of total inventory. So um, the other thing I was going to ask you about is I think another big, we live in California. You know, the, the joke is everybody's left our, uh, everybody left California and went everywhere else. Right. Um, I know here in San Diego, um, I'm hearing from a lot of people, people from the Bay area, you know, they're moving down here cause they can work from home. So I, there's, you know, there's not, I don't think there's mass migration, but there's some, um, do you kind of look into that data? The migration is, is that, and I've heard from a lot of people, like it's not, it's not as in, it crazy as it really seems, but I just kind of see if kind of get your comments on that. Well, people have been living, leaving California since I could remember, like in the late eighties. And the population <laughs> is like 40 million and it's like the yeah. biggest economy in the world. Um, people naturally always move to a, a more affordable place when they need to buy a single family homes. In, in fact, even before COVID or everything, I thought that years 2020 to 2024, you could see more people moving to cheaper areas just to buy a house because they need a bigger home. Uh, the migration patterns, you know, a lot of people from San Francisco actually didn't leave San Francisco. They just went... 30, 45, 50 miles uh, east of San Francisco because they can buy something bigger. The work from home model changes everything because naturally we all lived near our work before. You know, some people have, you know, 30, 60, 90 minute commutes. But if you can work from anywhere, of course your pay changes. Boy, that changes a lot of things. That's such an exciting new variable, but it also hasn't created any more inventory. Um, I, I had hoped that, you know, more people would have been doing this and maybe inventory increased. It, it really hasn't. Because when, when we think about inventory, you know, an, a, a seller is a natural buyer too, right? So it's not like people sell their homes and become homeless, or there are people that sell their homes and rent maybe for the rest of their lives. But naturally, if you're a seller, you're a buyer of a house. It's just that there's just not that many homes on the market when demand is stable. And the work from home model has just facilitated the downward shift in inventory just because they're selling their high-priced homes and wherever San Francisco, LA, and they can move to a lot of places. Like Boise is still cheap. Austin is cheap to California. You know, a lot of these places that have, you know, Montana has gone up so much in home prices. To a California homeowner, these areas are cheap. So they just buy if they can, if they work from home somewhere else. But uh, in general, that tends to happen with a, maybe a move up or a move down buyer. There's so much nested equity in houses now that uh, uh, for them, housing isn't as expensive as it seems to other people just because their down payments are typically bigger. Uh, but the migration is, 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 a, is a real story. It's just not as big as people think it is. Also, California gets uh, the people that come into California typically are higher income. So home sales, you know, everyone says home sales are, are, are local. Home sales in California are trended similar to the home sales in nationally. So it all kinds of all moves in the same direction. When rates go higher, though, it impacts California first, just because the mortgage buyers, the marginal mortgage buyer gets hit. But in general, it, it, anybody from California looks around the country and like most states are really cheap. Uh, so there is an appeal from them to just, hey, sell my house, take all my equity and go buy uh, a nice big home somewhere and I could just work from home there. That, that is a very, that's a new variable. It's very exciting. We'll see how, how it works out over the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, California. We seem to see things first if rates do rise. Cause obviously the, in other markets too, where the housing's super expensive. So that makes sense. Um, another question for you is, um, I'm seeing this a lot. Um, the transformation of wealth. And uh, I'm seeing it just a lot of people. Somebody passes. The grandma left him 100000 a million, this, that. Uh, economist here, Alan Nevin, he's in, in his presentation, he's a big thing. You know, $70 million is going to transfer. And, you know, that's going to cause. So there's just all this money, too, that's flowing, right? 
And so I was going to ask you about that. I mean, then I was going to say you take that and then in the same content, there's also Wall Street is buying houses too, like never before. And that's another buyer that's buying them and renting them back out, which is causing, don't you agree, more issues for like, you know, housing, like they're taking houses off the street from somebody that could buy it. Well, here's the thing. The biggest investors in America are mom and pops. Mm -hmm. uh, so post 2008, we've had a higher level of cash buyers than normal and investors yep. as well. But Wall Street isn't really that big of a buyer. And I'll give you a good example because this story has yep. been here for probably 10 years now. Uh, from 2011 to 2017, Wall Street, pension funds, everything, they bought a total of 200,000 homes. Uh, back in, in that uh, period. There's okay. over like 40 million homes bought uh, during that time. I, I, I think the Wall Street story gets overplayed to a degree just because it's a great headline. But the dangers of making Wall Street a big buyer is that mortgage buyers run the market. So when mortgage buyers fade, so does housing. So sometimes I, I, I try to tell people there is no Wall Street moat around housing because they just buy in certain areas. Like the iBuyers, like the whole iBuyer thing was completely overblown. It was like, it wasn't even 1% of total home sales. Wow. So like when Zillow blew up with that, uh, they had 7,000 homes they needed to sell. Some people go, oh no, look, Zillow's getting out because they know, no, they overpaid for homes and they're getting out of the business. And now the one of the bigger iBuyers are gone. So they're not big enough to protect the housing market. Mortgage buyers are, are the primary buyers out there. They are part of the equation. That's a very fair game, 16, 17, 18%. But, you know, I show people like, you know, the year over year data sales to investors and in the existing home sales, it's like 14 to 15% or 15 to 14. It's not that big. It used to be actually bigger a few years ago. So uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a profile home buyer. Uh, but again, uh, I, I always caution people, don't think that Wall Street is going to buy any of the homes uh, if mortgage rates rise. If mortgage rates rise, demand falls because the biggest buyer is mortgage buyers, right? So, so when they fade, housing will fade with it. Uh, Wall Street simply doesn't have that kind of reach. Uh, there are pockets in the areas where they buy, uh, buy big, but they're not as big as people think. Mom and pop investors are, are more of the bigger investors uh, than, than Wall Street. So what's your uh, prediction for housing this year? So uh, existing home sales ranges uh, are lower this year for me than they were last year. Last year, I talked about sales ranges be being between 5.84 million to 6.2 million. Majority of the year, that was the case. Well, uh, we ended off the year much stronger than I thought. Uh, this year, sales ranges between 5.74 to 6.16 million. Stable demand. My thing is all about 6.2 million total home sales, existing and new home sales together. Years 2020 to 2024, we should be able to hit that number every year, something we couldn't do from 2008 to 2019. So sales levels a little bit lower this year than, than, than uh, next year. If uh, home price growth between 5.2 to 6.7, uh, if rates can get above 4%, the rate of growth of pricing should cool down a little bit. But again, focus on total inventory levels. Until we could get back above 1.52 million or 1.93 million, we are in danger zone for uh, a total inventory. And it's just not, we, we, I, I was hoping that we have a little bit more inventory toward the end of uh, 2021 and it didn't happen. And now we're break, broken to fresh new all times lows. So until we get back to those levels, I always call this the very unhealthy housing market just because people just want somewhere to live. And there's too many of it right now compared to the existing home sales market. So right now, as we talk uh, today, January 20, 27th, there's what? There's under a million the last, well, the last NER report, which is a month old, was 920,000 total of homes for sale. Uh, there's other people that have different kind of metrics. Single family homes is like only 300, 400,000. It really is um, uh, an inventory crisis, which wasn't, a, we didn't have an inventory crisis from 2008 to 2019. I know a lot of people said that, oh, we have low inventory. There was plenty of homes to buy. Here, under 1.52 million, oh boy that you could see what happens to the market. It's just like that hungry, hungry hippo game. Everybody's trying to get that one ball and they'll do some crazy stuff to get it because people need somewhere to live. 
right? And the people that make money need somewhere to live. And, you know, and it's spilled over to the rent inflation. You know, that's something I talked about with the Washington Post early last year. I said rent inflation is about to take off because not everyone can buy a house. And there's not that many houses out there in the first place. So if you don't get your rent, you have to rent somewhere. So we see this surge in rental inflation as well, yeah. because guess what? We had 32 and a half million uh, millennials in that sweet spot demographic patch, and not all of them could buy. So guess what? Rent inflation take off. So it's uh, it's the exact opposite of what happened during the housing bubble crash. It's the, the inventory shortages, demand is too good, prices are accelerating, rent and housing. So hopefully the rate of growth cools down for everything and we get some stabilization. But as of right now, we're starting the year at fresh new all-time lows with sub 4% mortgage rates and sub 4% unemployment rates. Do you think we're going to get there to 1.5 to 1.9? If you had a, if you, if you're a betting man, would you bet we'd get there? Yeah. The only way we get there is it's all like we need Japan and Germany bond yields to rise up with us. And it just, this year it's usually inventory doesn't skyrocket in a year. It's usually a progression. Uh, So you need weakness in demand going from the previous year into the next year, kind of like what we saw in 2005 and six and seven where demand falls. But so far, and this is one thing I I always tell people, you can get a heads up of how the year is going to look by looking at the mortgage purchase application data from the second week of January to the first week of May. It's very seasonality heavy. So the the upfront volume is there. And so far this year, demand is stable. And stable demand in this environment just won't let inventory rise. I mean, even in 2018 with 5% mortgage rates, uh, uh, inventory levels didn't really move too much. So we need authentic weakness in housing. And so far, as of right now, this, the demand upfront is just stable. It's not letting inventory grow. Now, inventory will naturally rise in the spring and summer, but it always fades in the fall and winter. So you have to just, a lot of people use that, oh, inventory is increasing. It increases every spring and summer. Happens all the time. It's just you have to focus on total inventory levels to get perspective of what's happening in the United States of America from 2014 to 2020. I mean, because even if you get to the 1.5 to 1.9, that's just healthy. That's still low, but you're just saying it, it gives people hope. It's like healthy. Oh, it's- yeah, you're not, you're, you, you might be bidding against one person or two, not 15 <laughs> or I mean, I remember last year talking to some millennial in Seattle and he makes good money and he was happy and he was just getting beat every single time. And it wasn't just one or two people. He was like number 23 or 24. I mean, that drains on you, right? It drains on you. And, and a lot of these people make good money. So one of them, oh, I got to re-up my rent, you know, one year lease again, you know? So it's just, it, it's frustrating because authentically, like a lot of people say, oh, you're, you're, you're big housing bull. But this period of time, my like worst thing I can think of that happened to housing is actually occurring. And it's the inventory collapse because demand came up a little bit more. And somehow we have to be able to get off these, these levels because it's just not very healthy. And it's so hard, you know, it's because mortgage rates are too low and the economy is on fire and people are working and people need somewhere to live. So um, we'll see how the year goes. But right now, again, we're starting the year, fresh new all-time lows, sub 4% mortgage rates, sub 4% unemployment rates. What's the, uh, what is the, Besides, is the housing market going to crash? Besides that, because we know, what's the most common question you're getting these days besides that? Um, where are mortgage rates going? You know, uh, and again, my, my work is bond market first, mortgage rates second. I, I believe in bond yields, not mortgage-backed securities or mortgage rates. So I go where the, I think the 10-year yield is going to go. And I've written a lot of stuff about this on Housing Wire where, you know, saying it's going to be hard to get mortgage rates above 4% in this recovery. And even today, we're still not there. So we need global yields to come up. And nobody talks about that. You know, nobody says, we need Japan and Germany's 10-year yields to come up with us. So uh, for Housing Wire today, actually, I'm writing an article about that, showing people that we need global yields to come up with us because we can't do it just by ourselves. And their and their yields are low. They've been low, right? They were what Germany was negative. Germany was negative for so long. It just recently went positive. So if yeah. Germany and Japan, and I specifically mentioned them in my 2022 forecast, we need these countries to come up with us to push yields higher. 
So it, it, it hasn't been enough yet to get us above 1.94%. So I'm hoping it will, but again, we still can't crack that level. And that's why I focus on bond yields and I don't really focus on mortgage rate targeting or mortgage-backed securities. The bond market to me is, is, has always been my main thing uh, with, with economic work and, and, and housing work. So Logan, if people want to know, I know housing wire, people want to learn more about you, what you do. And obviously you provide, I'm on housing wire. I subscribe. You have, there's so much great information on there that honestly people can just read, 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 and don't listen to the news. I tell people don't listen to idiots. Listen to guys like Logan that study the data that know what's what's going on. That's why I always tell people data does not lie. People on YouTube can actually lie and BS you. So where's the best place for people to find you and learn more about your work and what you do? You know, all my work now is tied in with housing wire. Uh, Sarah Wheeler and myself, we have a podcast called the rundown. We do it every Monday. And basically we just try to nerd out as much as possible with all the recent economic data. So that is open to the public, but HW plus, if you sign that, if you could even use my Logan VIP 50 code uh, uh, to, to sign up and, and get a really big discount. Uh, all my stuff is there. It is basically data economic modeling. You know, and to, to your to your things, you know, people, politicians, poets, YouTubers, they can lie. Numbers do not lie. Numbers are the closest thing we got to the handwriting of God, which came from the movie Pacific Rim. But that is basically the job is for me to show you a pathway of where the economy is going and where's housing going. Because I'm an economic cycle person first, housing second. So I'm just here to show you the pathway, right? I'm not here to sell like, oh, it's going to crash. Come click my thing. Math, facts, and data matter. The rest is storytelling. Well, Logan, uh, great to see you. Great to talk to you. I always appreciate the time. Um, I think I got a lot of notes. If you can see, I wrote a lot of notes. So um, when I talk to people, I have some information. But um, good seeing you. You look great. You're aging great, as I tell you. <laughs> and uh, congr I know what last time I talked to you, you weren't full time. I don't think with Housing Wires, you are. So congratulations on your role and, and congratulations on retiring out of the mortgage industry. So that's awesome. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> More fun than I thought. I bet. Well, until next time, I know next time we'll, I, I you know, I have their stuff, but I'll look forward to chatting with you again next time. But until then, I'll keep stalking you on housing wire and waiting for uh, the rates to go up and the inventory to go up. So we'll see if that really happens or what happens. It's, that's, that's what we're all focusing on. Me too. Have a wonderful time. It's great to be here. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.